a divine design. So uh, if you keep track of titles, then uh, cross out the title on your uh, program that uh, talks about, I think I gave it as uh, how the early church met and uh, gave, uh, after studying, gave it this new title, Small Churches, A Divine Design. So why do we keep our churches small? You may have heard the leader, church leaders here talk about small churches and the reason we want to keep the churches small. We have never, and maybe you, and I think, I think I've heard you as well talk about the benefits of small churches, but we have never enumerated them uh, more specifically. And so uh, uh, this morning we want to think our way through how the early church met and what we see in the, in the pattern of their meetings. I have three different like stages of this uh, presentation. Uh, the first one is from space to spirit. Now, that means space as in not outer, but in space to spirit. And then uh, we want to consider from Jewish temple to Roman villa. And last and the, mo- the, the majority of the time we want to spend on from first century to the 21st century thinking about how can we apply in the 21st century what was practiced in the first century. So uh, uh, first from space to spirit. And I'm drawing here on that event that is uh, that we know as Jesus and the, the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, where there were new instructions given about where to meet. If you recall in that incident, The woman, once she understood that Jesus is a prophet, she said, well, is this mountain over here, which was on Mount Gerizim, where there was a Samaritan temple, and the Samaritans would worship there, whereas the Jews worshiped in a temple in Jerusalem. And so her question was, well, okay, now that a prophet is here, then let's get this settled. Where is the proper space or where is the place that we should worship to meet God? And Jesus' answer essentially is neither. He said the hour is coming. Actually, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he added in, in John 4:24, God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. All this to say, it's not so much about the space. It's about the spirit. You know, as far as we know from the uh, biblical witness, the early Christians never met in church buildings. I mean, church buildings. They did not seem to have built church buildings either. Does not seem to have been a uh, a priority for them, even after, uh, like, eventually thousands of people came to Christ. Okay, so where did they meet? Well, first, they met in the temple until it was destroyed, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So it appears as though the early church, like those first days when the church had been founded, they continued to meet in the temple. And then they would eat bread, or, and also they met in their homes. They also met in rented rooms. The Passover with the disciples 
for, for the Passover with the disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And then after the resurrection, the text in, in Acts 1.13 says, And when they returned, they went to the upper room where they were staying. So there could be rented rooms. But primarily, they met in private homes in Jerusalem and breaking bread in their homes. That's Acts 2.46. Uh, we just uh, read that. And then in Rome, also uh, Greet also the church that is in their home. Paul is writing there to the, the, the Romans, and he's writing uh, regarding Aquila and Priscilla. In Corinth, Aquila and, and Prisca is the, the name Priscilla is given there. Together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And in Colossae, you know, in uh, Philemon, Philemon was from Colossae, and this the letter that Paul wrote regarding the escaped slave Onesimus, he, say, he addressed it in uh, verse 2 to Philemon and to the church in your house. And I'll, I'll just mention something here and then we'll later come back to it again. But so, so note here that Philemon was wealthy enough to own slaves. He also had a church meeting in his house. There's a connection there. And we'll come back to that later. And then they also met in schools or like a public lecture hall in Ephesus. He, that's Paul, withdrew from them, from the Jewish synagogue, after it says that they began to be stubborn and, and uh, just troublesome and divisive. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. The hall of Tyrannus was probably a public lecture hall. If you tour ancient Ephesus today, and you walk down the main street, there is a large library. It's got this, like Google at the Ephesus Library, and you'll see this large building. Next to it, there, is a, there was a building, and they found a plaque that said, the hall of, and then it was broken. And they never found the rest of that. So we can only speculate that the hall of Tyrannus was right next to the public library, which would have been the center of learning, and where people came to study and so on. But that's, uh, that, of course, can't be, be proven. But in any case, Paul withdrew from the synagogue and went to uh, a lecture hall, and they, there he reasoned daily. It's thought probably uh, uh, that he would have made tents maybe part of the day, and then in the afternoon or, in the, or whenever it was that the lectures took place, then he would have uh, lectured. And there's a sense here in the, which this, during this period, this was like Paul's high point of ministry. Where, where even like those, uh, like, like they took garments that he had touched and, and took them to people that were sick and he was, they were healed and so on. So this was a, uh, like a, uh, I think a great uh, you know, exposition of the gospel. So where did the early church, churches meet? As far as we know from the biblical witness, the early churches never met in church buildings. They never seemed to have built church buildings or like buildings specifically to meet in as churches. Where to meet does not seem to have been a priority even after thousands came to faith in Christ. So where did all these new believers meet? I'm quoting here from a man named uh, Donald Norby who wrote a book, The Early Church. said, what did the early church do? There are no rules about buildings in scripture. The early church was flexible and adaptable, determined to survive in every environment. Therefore, 
its externals were minimal, quite different from the beautiful and elaborate temple service. So if you think about, by contrast, when there was a space where God's people would come to worship in the temple, there was an, it was a, an ornate building, and there were like specific ceremonies, and, and it, was, uh, it was quite the event. And by contrast, in the New Testament church, we do not see any of that, that aspect of worship. So conclusion on this first part, from space to spirit. Early churches met almost exclusively in private homes, and worship is not about the space in which we meet, but it is about the spirit in which we worship. It's not wrong to build a building to meet for worship. It's just not prescribed exactly how we should do this. So often when we do not find things in the Bible to instruct us, we look at ancient biblical traditions. But the lack of instruction, I would propose, means that we're free to make the best possible decisions about where to meet. So uh, one of the things I want to point out here about, uh, about the spirit in which we meet and, and the space is not that important is that our, in, in the human experience, now I think we are less inclined this way than many are, but there is often this sense of, uh, of sacred space where rituals are, are done. So for example, when we were uh, in, in Ukraine, we went to Eastern Orthodox cathedrals where there is never actually the word expounded. Like you would come to church in the morning and you would walk in and you would stand there and the priest would come around with, his, uh, with uh, the burning incense and so you could take a candle and take it up and light it or place it there kind of as an expression of devotion and then you would stand and look at a large ornate wall of icons. And so like your, your religious worship came through the place in which you were and the environment that was created. And so I think we sometimes say, well, you know, like you, you were at a place and it was a sacred place. I understand that, but I th- think we should not overemphasize the space, but we should think more in terms of the spirit in which we, we enter in to worship in spirit and truth. Okay, so now from uh, the next section, from Jewish temple to Roman villa. So God used churches meeting in private homes to turn the Roman world upside down. So if you think about the Roman Empire and the Roman culture, you know, the Hellenistic worldview was strongly ingrained in the culture of its time. And it was embodied or, or like it was taught in large temples and in large schools. And you would think that the church, in order to, to change, like to, to bring the gospel and change the way that people think, they will have to engage in that same kind of, uh, you know, architecture and building program and teaching program. And so how are they ever going to, like, make any impact in the Roman culture? And, but through meeting in smaller groups, in private homes, exercising what we'll call the Apostles' Doctrine, churches swept across the Roman Empire. So it had nothing to do with the building. It had to do with the manner in which people met. So what kind of houses did, uh, 
these churches meet in. So this is a Roman villa. Now, uh, now I understand, uh, let, let me say right here that I understand that the, the New Testament church experience that's recorded is essentially in the Mediterranean basin. And the Mediterranean basin is a relatively mild climate. So it was possible to meet, and generally it would be in uh, historians and archaeologists say in like in a Roman villa. And so what a Roman villa was is uh, don't equate a house with like a Roman villa house with a modern house in our times, but it was generally like a, a semi-commercial place, a place of business. Uh, it would often have, uh, if you Google this, you'll find photographs of Roman villas with, that would often be kind of like a courtyard, if you will, or have a courtyard in the middle with, with rooms built around it and atriums. And so in a relatively mild climate, a relatively wealthy believer would invite the other believers in the area to meet at his house. And they would meet in that open area in the courtyard or under the atrium, but uh, kind of in that in the Roman villa. Uh, some, uh, it was also pointed out that they generally, they probably had the mindset that's more of you know Asian mindset today about how many people fit in a in a room than the, what the American individualistic mindset is and so they probably more people could fit in a uh, 24 by 48 space than uh, uh, than we that we would uh, could set chairs in so but essentially these houses were like the the places, the, the dwelling places of the uh, more wealthy people. So God used churches meeting in private homes to turn the Roman world uh, upside down. So, okay, okay, now the question is, I wanted to get to that final question. How many could these houses accommodate? And there are some very interesting statistics here, but uh, it, it appears from, as they said, several scores, which would be like 40, uh, but so I just I chose fifty to one fifty, so, and that's kind of a, a range there. But uh, let's say I think that's a that's a range that falls within what the archaeologists and, and historians uh, believe. Okay, now go. To, let's go to the third of these uh, sections, and here we want to talk about the divine design from first century to twenty first century. Why is all this meaningful and important to us today? And I, we want to consider briefly all of these different aspects. The family relationship dynamics, the one another ministry, the participatory worship, sharing the Lord's Supper, congregational consensus, multiplication, and resource allocation. So let's first talk about the, uh, the family dynamics. The New Testament talks about the church as a family, and it's like we live in community. Believers are children of God who have been born into God's family. God's people are seen as part of God's household, sometimes the New Testament says. We're called brothers and sisters. So consequently, Christians are to relate to one another as members of a family. And out of this theological truth, that God's children are family arises many church 
practice issues such as the size of the congregation that best facilitates our functioning as God's family. So related to that is the one another ministry. The scriptures are full of these one another commands. The church should be associated with mutual encouragement, accountability, relationships, community, relationships and community and maintaining church disciplines. So all of these things are best accomplished in small congregations where people know each other just like we know each other in our families, even extended families. A large auditorium of people, most of whom are relative strangers to each other, will not easily achieve these goals of, of uh, uh, such as mutual encouragement and accountability and relationships and living in community and maintaining church discipline. Just doesn't happen in a large group where you don't know each other. Nominal Christianity. I'm reading here from a quote. Nominal Christianity is harbored as it becomes easy to get lost in the crowd. Smaller churches best foster the simplicity, vitality, intimacy, and purity that God desires for his church. Okay, the next uh, uh, consideration is participatory worship. So early church meetings were clearly a participatory, meaning that uh, small groups met together and they participated with each other in the study of God's word, in the exercising of their gifts, and so on. You can tell that from reading the accounts that Paul, the letters that Paul wrote to the churches. So as the Roman villas were replaced by the large basilicas, participatory worship was replaced by more of a performance or more of a where there is one that instructs and all the rest are seated pretty far away. Sometimes a uh, uh, as in the large basilicas, like the, the speaker would be like one story up in a little cubicle on the side of the wall so that he could be seen and heard. And the idea of participatory study and worship interacting with each other fell by the wayside. And it actually, that practical reality of the priesthood of the believer was lost until the Reformation again. Okay, the next is the sharing of the Lord's Supper. So, the larger the congregation, the less family-like and the more impersonal the Lord's Supper as a true meal becomes. Early church meetings centered on like the, the Lord's Supper. It, it, it can be read. I'm, I was going to say it appears, but I'll say it can be read that the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper every time they met each week. So that will we'll dive deeper into that some other day. But... Uh, it really centered around you know, community rather than uh, a more like uh, a funeral-like atmosphere where, you know, where there's like, like uh, it was a celebration. It wasn't a funeral, but it was, it was a celebration rather than this solemn event. And that's what you can do when, you, when you're together in a small group. Okay, now, uh, five is congregational consensus. So the New Testament church had a plurality of clearly identified leaders, elders, pastors, and, and, and so on. Yet these leaders led more by example and by persuasion than by command. Building consensus of the whole congregation is the way in which our churches make decisions. Achieving consensus is possible 
in a church where everyone knows each other, loves each other, bears with one another, is patient with each other, and is committed to each other. The larger the fellowship, the more difficult it becomes to maintain relationships and lines of communication. And so the larger the congregation gets, the more the pastor becomes the CEO that issues commands that, uh, that needs to be, need to be followed. And the intimacy is lost and the ability for a group of brothers and sisters to build a consensus when there is something to decide is greatly weakened. So it's another reason to keep uh, churches small. Multiplication. So small churches have a great potential for growth through multiplication. Here I'm going to use a phrase, and I don't know that I, I don't know the data behind this. I just know that you find this recurring, kind of as an accepted truth that small churches, or let's say new churches, rephrase this, new churches grow faster than big churches. So why? Well, I'm not sure. I would. I tend to think it's because they're smaller and more intimate and more meaningful relationships, more relational. But in any case, new churches grow faster than larger churches. So new leaders should be continually trained from within to go out and start new churches. Or as one, as, uh, one uh, uh, writer said, we need to think small in a really big way. So rather than growing a single church bigger and bigger, consider sending off clusters of people to start new small churches. Be a small church that starts new small churches that start new small churches. That's how it happened around the Mediterranean basin in the early church period. And it wasn't until after 300 and the Constantinian shift that the time came when the people of God, actually it's, it's kind of ironic here. Now I'm on, on uh, this is, I'm not a trained historian, so this is kind of like uh, just my observation, but it does seem that as the pagan religions declined and the lar their large temples fell into disuse, the Christians began to build the large temples and they drifted into what we call the Dark Ages and that, that long time of, uh, of uh, uh, spiritual apostasy. Okay, so another uh, uh, thing is, is resource allocation. So uh, here I'll just say that uh, it's pretty staggering when you think about how much money a church spends to have a place to meet once a week. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm not like saying, I'm not saying, hey, this is the wrong decision to buy this building. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just like to say, generally speaking, let's think about that when you build a, and now in, in, in our case here, we took an existing building and we're trying to modify it to accommodate our needs and so on without spending uh, you know, undue amounts of money. And I think this is, is commendable. When you go to build a new, it's true that there are often millions of dollars spent when a new church is start or like when a, when a new church building is built. So if you think about if all the funds that American churches spend on themselves, or at least half of them, could be redirected to minister to the needs of others around the world, what an impact that would make. 
There's a number, and I'm not quite sure what that number is. I've read it, but I couldn't uh, locate it just now. That says what percent of the money that our churches receive in our offerings we spend on ourselves. And it's, it's by far the majority, most of it, we spend on ourselves. So to bring this to a close, why do we keep our churches small? Well, one of them is resource allocation. I'm not saying that we should think about meeting in houses. That's not the point here. But we should have this mindset that there is that that we should not fall into the trap of thinking we need large buildings with special accommodations that are used only once a week that cost undue amounts of money for just like certain features that go with creating a space that is sacred that we should be able to meet in regular buildings that have useful purposes. And no, we're not in the Mediterranean basin. We're not in the 1040 window. So we are uh, in, uh, in climates where it gets cold. So we will need, uh, of course, to be prepared for that. But, but we should not, uh, I, I've already made the point. So resource allocation is, is one, not, but not the main point. I would say this, that the main reason that we keep our churches small is discipleship. It's effective discipleship. Uh, we have, uh, uh, as a church, we are turning away from regulation-based administration to a discipleship-based administration. And so the smaller the churches, the more effective our discipleship. And I would propose that it also makes stronger churches. Uh, when you have small churches, with a plurality of leadership where everyone is participating in the worship and everyone is participating in the study of God's word and everyone has something to do, has a part in the ministry of the church, the result is stronger churches. While we're on the, uh, the point here of everybody having something to do, if you think about, okay, so does the, does the Bible actually tell us anything about like how many members did these first churches have? Well, in the first Corinthians, you read about all the different spiritual gifts and they all had, they were, they were exercising their gifts. In, uh, in uh, Matthew 18, that process of if someone offends you, then go to him. And if he uh, doesn't hear you, then take it to the church. That implies more than, you know, like, like you and me and mom, you know, us four and no more. That, that there's obviously we're talking here about a, a, a bigger group. So I'm proposing to you that uh, small churches are a divine design. Okay, now don't take that to mean everybody that's not like us is, uh, is not, uh, does not have a divine design. But I would say that for us as a people, as our churches grow, we should be focusing on participatory worship where everyone takes their part. We should be focusing on leadership development so that as the group gets to the point where we have, and so what we've kind of like like seen is around, a, let's say, 80 to 100 people, it's time to start thinking about starting another church. Could there be up to, a, well, if you wait until you have 150, then it's too late. Okay, so, so start earlier. And uh, the dynamics of this kind of church life, the dynamics of fellowship and discipleship that are possible in these smaller churches will enable us to be stronger churches that multiply 
and that will make a difference in our culture. It's the biblical pattern of the apostolic church and the early church. Let's not get hung up on the details, but let's look at the pattern and see how God can work through that divine design.